If you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17. It's on page 445 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to be doing quite a bit of reading this morning, and I do not have the text, most of the text on the screen. I think it's good for us to follow along in our Bibles, and being a first grade Zoom teacher, I know there's only so, so much that you can stare at someone before you lose sight of what they're saying. So I would encourage you to follow along in the scriptures with us this morning as we read together. We're going to start by reading 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 55. 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 55, says there, When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. And then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him, and he brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. And then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and he gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And so David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This, um, this section of the text is a reading that takes place in the moments that follow David slaying Goliath, the fearsome Philistine. We know that David will one day become king, as his anointment has occurred previously in chapter 13 of, verse, of 1 Samuel. And this event of David's bravery also occurs after King Saul has lost favor in the sight of God. In chapter 15 we read that um, he did not heed the Lord's commands to destroy all of the Amalekites and their possessions. And so now David comes into the presence of King Saul and of his son, Jonathan. And almost immediately, we find a great bond is established between David and Jonathan. It is a covenant of two souls being knit together in friendship. And so in our study this morning, we want to explore this newfound relationship between David and Jonathan as it unfolds over the next few chapters. So this will serve as our introduction. At this time, we plan to um, go to God in a word of prayer. So I ask that you humble yourselves in some way. I want you to think for just a moment about who your best friend is. I know that some people have multiple best friends. I've always been the kind of person who can't have multiple best friends because the word best just doesn't fit that definition for me. But um, I've known, you know, girls, a lot of times they'll call everyone their best friend. And they've got lots of friends, which is great. But I've always been just kind of a one best friend kind of guy. And um, I want you to think about who your best friend is. If you're married, hopefully you can sit there and nudge your spouse next to you, which is great. 
Um, if you're not, perhaps you've got some great friends in your life who you know that you could call upon in any circumstance for anything. And hopefully those friends are, are people who share your faith. And if they're not, hopefully you're working on them to, to get to a place where you can share the gospel with them. I think that this verse here is, is so interesting to think about. I, I don't know that there's really a recording of an earlier time when David and Jonathan have necessarily interacted. Uh, but we have this here where their souls are kind of knit together and they develop this bond this deep love for each other. Um, as I think about my friends, a lot of you guys know I have a great friend in, in Aubrey Smith who lives out in Mississippi. And he and I are polar opposites in our personalities. But we kind of had a, an instance one time when I've told him this before and he's not a very mushy, emotional guy so he just kind of whatever. But... And the, one of the first times that I had ever encountered him, I, had, I was dating his sister. And, you know, he's the brother. So we had to kind of get along a little bit. But the first time that I met him, uh, I was staying at his grandparents' house. And, you know, it was kind of weird being in a new place. I wasn't really sure of myself, just trying to be, you know, a good example. Put out the feelers, see how everything was going. And I woke up the next morning, and he uh, was sitting at the, the table and he was reading his Bible as soon as he had woken up. And he, I'm an early riser, uh, and he had been up for a long time. And that moment has stuck out to me for so long that that was one of the first pictures I have of him, was waking up on a Saturday morning, and he was reading his Bible. And I saw that in, in a time when I was very spiritually weak, and it made a great impression upon me. And you know, I went to visit him this past weekend, and over at his little apartment that he's got, his coffee table is just stacked with books and studies and things that he's been working on. Of course, he's training to become an evangelist. Um, but I just, that, that faithfulness that he exhibits in his life has always been something that's encouraged me. And I think that that's really kind of helped us to knit our friendship together. So hopefully with your relationship with your friends, you have similar experiences of, of deep emotional bonding. Um, and we're going to notice some of that this morning as we study about what happens in 1 Samuel 18 through 20. And so we'll go through next in, in chapter 18. In the remaining portions of chapter 18, we find that David's success against Goliath creates quite a stir within Israel. In verse 7, we find that there are women who come out singing and dancing in celebration. And they're singing that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Though Saul is king, people are beginning to see that David has something special about him that Saul does not have. And uh, this, this taunting kind of upsets Saul. In verse 9, it tells us that Saul begins to eye David from that point forward. So there's a certain jealousy in, in the way that this king deals with this, this man who is under him and how the people see him from that day forward. Later on, we find that Saul is overtaken by a harmful spirit, and he tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. We find that Saul has a certain affinity for spears throughout the story, but even in that moment, God is with David. And he evades Saul's attacks twice. 
And this kind of puts a fear in Saul. And so he sends David away from him, and he, he uh, makes him into a commander of a thousand in the king's army. So kind of putting some distance between him and, and David, he sends him out to go and uh, fight some battles. Now continuing on, as Saul uh, is kind of disparaging against David with his evil deeds, Saul gives his daughter Michal to be David's wife. Um, in 1 Samuel 18 and verse 21, it says that he does this so that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And so Saul is not doing this uh, as an act of love, but he's kind of doing it so that he can sow some seeds in there to cause problems. And we find that uh, the bride price or the dowry for David to marry uh, Saul's daughter was elected by Saul to be 400 or 100 foreskins of the Philistines, meaning that he was to go out and uh, destroy 100 Philistines. This is kind of Saul's plan to put David in the line of fire. But then David, of course, being the great man of God that he is, he goes out and he does double, and he kills 200. We read in 1 Samuel 18, verses 29 through 30, that after this, Saul was still more afraid of David. And so Saul became David's enemy continually. And then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was that whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. So we find tensions beginning to rise between David and his new father-in-law, but God is siding with David. And this remark about him dealing wisely is sort of a direct contrast to what we learn of Saul. In 1 Samuel 13 and 13, we find Samuel uh, calls Saul a fool because of what he did in sparing some of the Amalekites and not doing what the Lord asked him to do. So David's uh, behaving more wisely is kind of hinting at his success as a military commander, which in turn is gaining him uh, increased honor and recognition, which is going to really come in handy as he ultimately will ascend the throne after Saul. So now we'll read uh, the first seven verses of chapter 19. Here the plot kind of thickens as Saul seeks to kill David in a more direct way. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. And then what I observe, I will tell you. So Jonathan arrives back on the scene just as before. He's a friend to David. And he tells David that he needs to go and hide himself away until uh, Saul can promise David's safety. Continuing on in verse 4, Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father, and he said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood 
to kill David without a cause. So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. And so Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. So things seem to end in this section on a positive note as Jonathan sways Saul for making a poor decision. He was going to kill David without uh, any real cause. David's done nothing of harm to Saul. He's defeated Goliath. He's aided him as an army or as a commander in his army. Um, He defeats even more Philistines to marry Saul's daughter. Perhaps Saul's ill will comes from knowing that David will ultimately vie for the the throne. There's that same verse we were kind of looking at earlier in 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 and 14, where Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Of course, we often call David the man after God's own heart. Um, I'm not sure if Saul knew in this moment that that's who uh, Samuel was talking about, but um, his kingship is going to be taken from him. So naturally, he's kind of on guard in all these times, wondering who's that going to be, what's going to happen. And his peace uh, doesn't last for long. Saul, again, he's overtaken by an evil spirit, and Mr. Spear comes back. He tries to spear him again, just as before, and David ultimately, ultimately flees into the night in chapter 19 and verse 10. And so the hunt begins as, uh, as Saul sends his messengers to scout out David's hiding place. Through the rest of chapter 19, we have sort of a... Um, a plot between David and his wife where they try to get him out uh, get him out unscathed from where they were to be. Um, and we're going to read, let's read in verse 11 of chapter 19. Verse 11, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight... Tomorrow you will be killed. And so Michal let David down through a window. And he went and he fled and he escaped. And Michal took an image and laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, There was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. And then Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? Michal answered Saul. He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Verse 18, So David fled and he escaped. And he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Nioth. So here, David's wife warns him. She kind of is helpful to him as well. Um, she helps him to escape through a window in the night. She makes this fake David, which 
it's kind of interesting that you know they would kind of stuff this image, whatever it may be, with goat's hair. It makes me think of the, the time when Jacob deceived his father by putting goat's hair on his arm so that his blind father wouldn't know that he wasn't his brother Esau. Um, but we find here, this is the second instance where one of Saul's um, kids is helping David. And you kind of start to wonder, you know, what, what's going on with Saul such that his family is, is not able to, to side with him in these things? And we'll, note, we'll talk later about some of the, the problems that this has created with loyalty and priorities in our relationships. But um, she helps him, which, you know, Saul was giving his daughter as David's wife as a way to kind of thwart him to create a problem for him. And we see here that she's actually helping him here, as, as any wife should. And so David runs to be with Samuel at Ramah and then Nioth, and Saul's men find him there. So they're still on the move. So this whole time, David has been uh, being chased. You can imagine the kind of anxiety that he's probably feeling as he's just constantly running for his life. Um, and Saul's men find him where he goes again, and so he has to escape yet again. And then we get to chapter 20. We'll read, we'll start in verse, we'll start in verse 1, chapter 20. Then David fled uh, from Nioth in Ramah, and he went and he said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So you kind of start to hear this exasperation that David is feeling. Up to this point, we haven't really... Uh, been given like a window into what he's feeling or how that's going across in his mind. It's mostly just been narrative up to this point. But he says, what have I done? Why is he coming after me? Saul is trying to kill him over and over and over. And so Jonathan said to him, verse 2, By no means, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And then David took an oath again. And he said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So this here is a moment of great trust that Jonathan has in his friend, a lesson uh, that we'll also look to at the, at the end of our study this morning. Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. So Jonathan is he's kind of putting himself out there on the line. I will help you. Whatever you need, I'll make it happen. So then they begin to plan. In verse 5, David says to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon. And I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. And if your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. And if he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that the evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? In verse 9, but 
Jonathan said, Far be it from you, for I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you. Then would I not tell you? So David is obviously confused a little bit by Saul's threats on his life, and he devises this plan in which he's going to hide for three days. What he says here, uh, if there is any iniquity in me, go ahead and kill me yourself. This is a moment I think we can all empathize with David. He's beginning to wonder if maybe, maybe he's done something and that he just can't remember. Don't we sometimes feel that way when it feels like the universe is conspiring against us? We wonder, you know, what have I done to deserve this? Why are all these things happening? Why is, why is everything going bad all of a sudden? And maybe we think like David sometimes, that perhaps, perhaps it's because of some sin or some wrong that we've committed. Knowingly or unknowingly, we, it's difficult when, when uh, troubles come our way, it's difficult to rationalize those things sometimes. But Jonathan's response as a friend, he comes and says, far be it from you. He's strengthening him. He knows the ins and outs of David and what's been going on. He's been, he's been right there by his side this whole time. And he's not going to let David think that this is because of something that he's done. Because Jonathan can clearly see that it's not that way. It's his, it's his father. And so in true friendly fashion, he says, if, if I knew there was trouble, I would have told you immediately. Continuing on in verse, verse 10, David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? So speaking about being at the dinner, where David will not be at the dinner, uh, but Jonathan will be there with him. Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. And so both of them went out into the field. And then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, so Saul answers rightly, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if, if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not, not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Verse 16, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. So here Jonathan offers a prayer for his great friend and for himself. He emphasizes in this prayer his commitment to the plan that will provide safety for David. As, as he brings this challenging situation before God, it becomes that much more sacred. He's realizing that perhaps this is more than I can do on my own. And I need the Lord's provision. I need... Um, that security that only the Lord can provide. He says, may the Lord be with you. So then Jonathan said to David in verse 18, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. Speaking of that dinner. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly, and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed, and remain by the stone Ezel. Then I will shoot... Three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad, saying, Go find the arrows. 
And if I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But I say thus to the young, if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have uh, spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. So here a plan is, de- is derived beyond this feast and uh, how Jonathan will try to talk to his father and maybe get some hints about what's going to happen. Here they decide that Jonathan will shoot arrows and his speech will tell David whether he should stay or whether he should go. If the arrows are close enough for the young man to grab, then David will know that he's safe. But if the arrows are out of reach, then David knows that he needs to flee because it will not be safe for him. And so the account goes on that by the second night of David's absence at dinner, King Saul becomes very angry. He recognizes that as long as David is alive, Jonathan, his son, is not going to inherit the throne. Chapter 20 and verse 31. Saul throws a spear at Jonathan, which causes him to become angry as well, and he leaves dinner, grieved for David. So we can kind of see this picture of just this angry family dinner. And I don't know why Saul has spears in his dinner, in his dinner table conversation, but there they are again, causing problems with him and his son now. Beyond David, he's going after his own family in his fits of rage. And so the next morning, Jonathan goes out and he's going to shoot these arrows with, with the boy. So after Saul's anger the night before, it is obviously... Uh, We can tell, as readers of this story, we can tell that it's probably time for David to flee. And so when we read on in verses 37 through 39, it's no wonder that these things come to pass. Verse 37 begins, When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad, and he said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. So there's Jonathan's words telling David, it's time to go. So Jonathan, uh, his lad, gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. I think that last verse is really important and integral to this story of their relationship together. The, you know, this, uh, this whole plan could have been totally unraveled if Jonathan had loose lips if he had told somebody else what, what, what was going to go down. I mean, I, I would worry about even, even telling just David's wife what was going to happen. You never know. When, a, when something needs to stay between two people, it needs to stay there. And so we see this trust again in their relationship. We understand that Jonathan's words mean that David needs to flee for his life. So verse 41, as soon as the lad had gone... David arose from a place toward the south, and he fell on his face to the ground, and he bowed down three times, and they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So these emotions here at the end of this 
uh, arc in their, their, their lives here. This, these emotions are so telling of the bond that these two friends share. David and Jonathan, we can tell, have a very a real and raw connection. They cry together, which after everything David has gone through, trying to escape Saul and Jonathan continually standing up for him, you can imagine how hard it would be to stand up to your, your father when, you're, when your best friend is involved in such a way. This, out, this outpouring that they have, it just seems like it's a natural occurrence. And so this concludes this narrative that we want to look at this morning. Um, and now we want to look to some, some lessons that we can learn from these three chapters in, in their lives. We learn a great deal about the friendship that arose between David and Jonathan. And there are several points that I think we can draw out that will be valuable to us as we consider the friendship we have with others in our own lives. First, we see sacrifice. In our opening reading, we saw that as soon as um, that bond was created between Jonathan and David on the battlefield, Jonathan gave David his robe. He gave him his armor. Jonathan gave him his sword and his bow, and he even gave him his belt. So as soon as he saw this friend who was in need, he was quick to give him all the things that he needed uh, to be successful. At this early onset, Jonathan understood the importance of David's success in the eyes of the Lord. He was willing to give up his own desires in order to see that David was better off. As we think about our relationships with others, are we able to set aside the things that we want for someone else's well-being, whether that be a short-term thing or a long-term thing? Are we willing to do that? Or is it too often more about keeping ourselves satisfied? We know that the Christian life is one of service. God comes first, others come second, and then we place ourselves at the end of that list. Philippians 2 and 3 says that in lowliness of mind, we are to esteem others better than ourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. If all we're doing in this life is looking to ourselves, how can I meet my own needs um, and just trying to be self-sufficient? One, that's going to cause problems for us as we look to Christ to fill a lot of the needs that we can't, we can't meet on our own. We need Christ, and we need each other. We need people in our lives who will, who will breathe uh, positive encouragement and help us to grow in the things that, um, that we need to grow in. Because sometimes there are problems in our lives that we can't see, and we need someone else's help. When we remember the assurance that God gives of his provision for our daily means, we're able to better focus on others. You know, we, if we stop and all we're concerned about is having our daily needs met, then, of course, that's as far as we can go. We're stuck right there in that bubble. But then we remember uh, the words of Christ in Matthew 6, verse 25 through 34. In verse 30, he says, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is... And tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Sometimes we've got to learn to lean. And that can be difficult. But nevertheless, that's, that's what's required of us. And so we see that Jonathan is an example of sacrifice. He helps his friend David no matter the cost. And he's willing to, to do all the things that needed to be done. 
Next, we learn about loyalty. You know, we saw time and time again this being seen in, uh, through Jonathan in the way that he behaved with David. Beginning in uh, chapter 19, after discovering his father's plot to kill David, Jonathan tells him about it. And he says that he will go and find out uh, more details. And when he talks to Saul, Jonathan reminds his father of the great thing that David did in slaying Goliath. He says that to kill David without cause would be to slay innocent blood. We likewise should be willing to stand up for our friends. And even for those that we do not know. Because that's part of championing, championing the cause of Christ. And championing those things that are good and noble and just. As Philippians 4 and 8 tells us. Romans 12 and 2 talks about um, having a transformed mind and a transformed life. Our loyalty must be Christ-centered. We don't sit by and watch bad things happen. You know, imagine how this entire situation would have changed if that's what Jonathan had done. Maybe he could have thought, I don't want to make my dad upset. So I'm just, I'm just going to... I'm just going to play along with it, pretend it's not happening. Even in matters of family, we must side with truth. And that's hard. We don't get a lot of, uh, like I said before, this, this story is a lot of narrative. We don't get a lot of insight into what each person is necessarily feeling or perspective from the writer in that sense. But um, if you were to put yourselves in Jonathan's shoes and your dad was trying to kill your friend, like, what would that do to you emotionally? As you're trying to help your friend and you're seeing all this happen with your father, that'd be crazy. But Jesus says in Matthew 10 and 37 that he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a hard concept to grasp. You know, if, if you were to bring that up to somebody who didn't share your faith, a lot of times that's going to be met with offense you know how could you choose this over your family that just doesn't make sense um, but those are the words of christ that if we put our family over our faith then our loyalty is not christ-centered it's not first to the lord as it should be jonathan tells no one but david about his plan as we talked about and it was kept secret between the two when a friend confides in us we have got to be able to keep those things confidential um, because they've trusted us with those things. I think this is especially important when it comes to confession. You know, the Bible tells us that we can go one to another to confess our sins. And if we become the type of people who go and talk to others about the things that have been confessed to us, that creates webs of problems in our lives. And one, nobody's going to trust you anymore. And two... That, that hurts your friend who is leaning on you in that time uh, for help. There's always going to be some kind of confrontation when that happens. You know, the word gets out and they come back to you. They can't believe that you did that. They feel betrayed. Chances are they're not going to tell you their secrets anymore. Chances are they're probably not going to go to you for confession. And you may be the only person that person feels comfortable confessing to. So, you know, that's a quick way to, to lose your friends and to tarnish your character. There's too much gossip in this world already uh, from people who don't know how to be loyal. And so as Christians, we've got to set the example to be loyal, to be trustworthy people, to be that person, even, even to our friends in the world, that they know I can go to that person 
because they're going to they're going to treat me with respect. Proverbs 11 and 13 says that a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. Now of course there are certain matters that cannot be concealed. You know, if if, if somebody brings something to you that needs to be addressed either by the leadership of the congregation or it needs to be brought before others like we can't we can't keep those things to ourselves and of course we tell that person the same thing before we go and take care of business as far as church discipline goes um, but it, just as a general way of life when when those secrets are given to you and trusted with you we've got to respect that and honor that as best we can a third point to bring out here emotional honesty this is probably one of the most difficult things to practice in life. At the end of 1 Samuel chapter 20, we see this emotional encounter between David and Jonathan. They're weeping together. Friends laugh and cry without worry of what the other may look like. I know that society sometimes builds walls up around this about how you, can, how you should portray yourself. We want to be seen as strong people. And sometimes our tears are seen as a sort of weakness. But we see here in this instance that their tears brought them closer together. And how sweet that is. If we're, if we're so busy trying not to cry when the ways of life get us down, um, that's not being honest with ourselves, with others. I think about this when, when people ask me how I'm doing. How are you doing? You know, that's one of those questions that people say as soon as they greet you. And a lot of times we just say good and we move along, right? Uh, with work the way it's been the last year, with remote teaching and just how draining everything has been every single day, I have had so much trouble answering that question with honesty. Because I, I, a lot of days I don't feel like I can just say good. And so, so I've tried to be a little more honest with people about it, and then of course you end up feeling like, man, every day feels like a drag. <laughs> and so sometimes you've got to be able to pick yourself up out of that pit and see what can I do to, get, to find the good things in here. But if, if we are consistently hiding the way that we feel because of some image of ourselves that we want to portray, that's just going to hurt us in the end because that's not being real to who we are. Close friends are probably more likely to feel these deep emotions together because of experiences that they've shared together, just as we examined with Jonathan and David. With a true friend, we should be able to freely express ourselves in situations where there may not even be words because the bond of our friendship covers it all. It's sort of like how um, you know, God already knows what we need. We pray to him. Sometimes we feel like we're bringing these revelatory things or we, you know, we ask him to help us with whatever, but he's already there. And our, our telling him is just kind of a, a way that we can express our human needs before him. We try to pray for things that concern us, but we know that he's already closer than a brother, and he knows our hearts. Proverbs 18 and 24 tells us that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It also says before that that a man who has friends must himself be friendly. So there's so much to be learned in this relationship here, and it extends beyond this. Uh, if you were to read on, we'd find some other ways that David honors this promise to Jonathan that uh, he will honor his family, even after Jonathan's passing. Um, but as they sought refuge from King Saul, so much happened there. And we, we want to consider both our earthly friendships 
and our spiritual friendships this morning as being a friend is an important aspect of serving Christ. So perhaps you're here this morning and you are not yet uh, a true friend of Christ. Maybe you haven't been baptized into the church, into the kingdom, to receive the blessings that Jesus has to offer. We can help you with that this morning. We know that the gospel plan of salvation tells us we must hear the word. We must believe in it. Believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. That we repent of our sins to turn away from our past life and move forward with a new self. And then we confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God before others unto men. And then we be baptized for the remission of our sins. Or perhaps this morning you, you're reflecting on your own life and you realize that um, you haven't been loyal. Maybe you haven't been um, there for your friends or for the greatest friend, for Christ. If you've slipped away, we're happy to pray with you this morning to help you be restored and to take your confession and pray for you, knowing that that's what the Bible tells us to do. So if you are a person who has a spiritual need this morning as we close, we want to offer the gospel invitation as we stand and sing.